Hi there, welcome to Philosophize today. We're talking about the fifth element. So if you've not seen it before, you might want oh, to Matt, give it a Matt, listen. Matt, 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 Dave, Matt. Dave, what? Don't, let's not bother with any of that. You know, people know we're going to be talking about the film. But what if they haven't seen it? And they... Well, you know, they're, 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 people are adults. They know what to do. Hi there, Matt. How are you doing, mate? I'm okay. How are you, Dave? I am super duper. Thank you for asking. So, um, right, we're back at the Philosophize podcast, and this time it is The Fifth Element, your choice of film. So it was. do you want to kick off and tell us uh, why you chose this? I chose this because it's um really unique, fun um, sci-fi action film uh that i that i like uh that's it i just like this film that's it yeah i like this film well i liked it too matt i know this film i remember it when it came out i remember seeing it when it came out um it was very different felt very different at the time to what else was around you know it's bright it's zangy i mean it it threw people yeah it was a sci-fi film but it threw people because it kind of didn't sort of follow all of the normal sci-fi tropes that everybody was really expecting and really divided audiences um i loved it mm. i thought it was excellent it's just got a great sense of life about it of it's vital it's vivacious it's bright it's colorful it's exciting uh, it's silly um it's profound aziz light aziz light good we start again when the three planets are in eclipse, the black hole like a door is open. Evil comes, spreading terror and chaos. See the snake, Billy. The ultimate evil. Make sure you get the snake. Yes, I've got your snakes. I got all the snakes. So when is this snake act supposed to occur? Huh? Well, uh, if this is the five, and this is the one, Every 5,000 years. So I've got some time. So Dave, would you have bet that I would be the one to pick our first French film? <laughs> yeah, well, well, I'm just going to celebrate the fact, Matt. Thank you very much. But it's the weirdest of things. It's, um, it's, a, it's a hen's teeth of a film. It's an English language French film. Directed by Luc Besson, 1997, and I believe at the time it was made, the most expensive European film ever made. It's got a great transnational cast. There's English actors, French actors, American actors, all in the mix here. Um, mm. So it, it feels very um, multinational kind of uh, and multi-ethnic kind of film. It's, it's got a great feel to it, I think, from that respect. So that being said, Matt, um, why don't you just take us through the main plot of the film and what's going on? Okay, so this is a sci-fi action film. Uh, we open up in the past, finding out that there's a device or a, an entity called the Fifth Element that's been stored in ancient Egypt and aliens arrive to take it away because war is coming and it's not safe and they, uh, the aliens take it and then leave a sect of priests to guard the key to get back into this room. We don't know what the fifth element is or what it's for. Uh, then we sort of zoom right into the far future. Uh, a new threat has arrived to the human civilization. It's this big ball of evil, literally. It's not very subtle. Can we get some terminology here, right? 
before we continue, because is it a is it a fiery black hole? Somebody refers to it as a kind of fiery planet. Sometimes it's gaseous, like a globe. Sometimes it solidifies. It can grow. What is it? What is it? What I don't is know. it? It's a big, big ball, big ball of evil. Big ball of evil. I'm fine with that. Big ball of evil. Yep. So it's a big ball of evil. They try and shoot at it. That doesn't work. This uh, priest called Cornelius. He speaks to the president and says, "Don't worry. These aliens are coming with a device that can fight the um, or the fifth element, the thing called the fifth element, supreme entity, supreme beings, going to be able to." Destroy the the big ball of evil. So these are these weird aliens. What are they? Mondashorans. Monda Mondashorans, I think, or something like that. And Mondachiwans. <laughs> really? Okay, Mondachiwans. The Mondos. Let's go with that, eh? Yeah, <laughs> the Mondos. Yeah. yeah so they they uh, they they're delivering the, the fifth element. What we need is the fifth element in order to destroy the evil thing. But it looks like old lost because it's been destroyed. Uh, we're also introduced to the. I'll be main character of the film, although it is quite an ensemble film, um, played by Bruce Willis, who is Corbin Dallas, who's a taxi driver, ex-military taxi driver. Basically, what happens is through technology, they manage to revive the fifth element uh, character called Lilu uh, through genetic um, construction of some sort. And she escapes on Earth from the people who are doing it, lands in the back of Corbin's taxi, he tries to save her from the police. They're going on a quest to find these stones, uh, which are going to be part of the device that allows the fifth element to save the world. And uh, in the background, we've got antagonists. Uh, the main sort of antagonist is played by um, Gary Oldman, called Zorg. And he's an advocate for the big ball of evil and is trying to stop the fifth element from, from being able to get to the stones. Yeah, I mean, let's, let's just pause there on, on Gary Oldman. Well, apparently, he hates this film by the way. And uh, he did it as a favour for Besson so that Besson would fund his one of his films. But I think Gary Oldman's excellent in it. I think he's really good. And um, it just goes to show that, I mean, it's an insane film. Insane's probably the wrong word. What I really want to say is it's, it's anarchic. It's like Zorg's just chatting on the telephone to, to the big black <laughs> planet of fire. You know, it's, you yeah. know, they keep having these little chats on the telephone and it's like, there's no kind of, reason for this to happen yeah i mean there's no reason a good thing about the charm of this film there's lots of things that happen and there's no reason for no it. reason like, whenever someone speaks the uh, the ball of evil uh, a sort of drip of blood comes down from their forehead but it's like where is that blood coming from you know it's not coming out of any hole because usually when you know be a nosebleed or an eye or an ear. is there a telepathic element sometimes there's a trope of you know telepathy being so strong for a human brain that you know you start bleeding out of yeah. your eyes, nose, and ears, and that's. I know, of but thing. that's why exactly where in the heads are coming out of. Yeah, <laughs> so <that's laughs> I think it's great. I mean, uh, some great. I mean, there's some great one-liners in the film, and my favourite from Zorg is when um, Vito, the priest, is brought to him and says something along the lines of "You're a monster, Zorg," and uh, Zorg just turns around and goes, "I know," in his southern kind of southern <laughs> American accent. I think it's just great. So, yeah, so Zorg um, is in cahoots with these um, Mangalores who are kind of um, a another alien race. They form a kind of mercenary force, you know, uh, forces for hire. Then, then of course, Zorg betrays them, or they see, see it as Zorg betrays them. So you've got all of these different, um, one wants to say, elements, and there are four of them, you know. You've got the state under the president trying to get Corbyn to go on this mission. You've got the priest who doesn't believe that um, the state can affect the right pathway toward solving the problem involved. 
You've got Zorg, who wants the stones in order to do something, which I don't think is ever really explained, maybe just nullify them for the, uh, for the fiery black planet. And you've got the Mangalores who want to get the stones in order to, to bargain with Zorg and get some firearms off him and all of this, that and other. And they all kind of converge on this planet Foston. Paradise! Ruby Rider just there is for two hours with Nasky Carbon and the manager of the Super Green Hotel and Miss Gemini Quack. Earthen at eight miles and other luxes here to enjoy the privilege of the unique concert of Miss Clavala. You know, I, th- I think The Fifth Element and, to a certain extent, uh, that uh, the film that Luke Besson made a few years ago, Valerian, both the closest that you can get to what experiencing Star Wars must have been at the time, before it became the sort of gargantuan machine of um, of canon and, and uh, extended universes and answers, just, just being presented with a universe that's really varied, really diverse, and with all of these characters and all of this mystery and intrigue, what the hell is what the hell is this place? You know, like the Star Wars canteen, like every scene in Fifth Element is like the Star Wars canteen. Very just good. all of these different different things. Yeah, um, where nothing has, has yet been explained. It's nice having a film that's just a film. I do love these like massive universes, but it's nice to have something on its own uh, as a unit. Yeah, and without the clamour for answers to everything, yeah. you know. Uh, when are you going to answer this? When are you going to answer that? Opening new stuff up. So yeah, so um, yeah, I can't, couldn't agree with you more. The Mondachi one have in their possession the only weapon to defeat evil. Four elements gathered around a fifth. Supreme being, the ultimate warrior, created to protect life. Together they produce what the ancients called the light of creation, able to bring life to the farthest reaches of the universe. But if evil stands there, then what? Then light turns to dark. Life to death, forever. Let's um, let's start talking about some aspects of the film first of all. So we've talked a lot about four elements and then the fifth element. So you know, you mentioned at the beginning of the film um, that I think it's set in nineteen fourteen. You know, with a typical kind of cliched um, scientist going into mm. a, um, pyramid or something like that, a tomb of some kind, um, and discovering this, these symbols and these kind of like narratives chiseled into the stone. Um, and you've got the, uh, sign of four elements, water, fire, earth, and air. And they kind of all surround this fifth element, which has kind of got a human-esque body that kind of resonates out and and mm. um, the scientist kind of like realizes that that um, that there's some kind of war and evil. Is it symbolic? What does it mean? But unbeknownst to him, there's a kind of um, ancient priest, you know, handed down time immemorial every five, you know, over about five thousand years, keeping an eye on it. Who knows what's going on? So let me ask you, what's going on? What? I mean, water, fire, earth, and air elements. This that's quite um, an ancient way of thinking about the way in which the world is organised. Um, and equally, uh, a fifth element? Question mark. What's what's your take on all of that? So I, I like it. Just the idea of a fifth element. It's like the fourth side of a triangle. 
you know, it's this idea that we think we understand everything. So that that's sort of the limits of human knowledge. You've got the earth, wind, fire, whatever. Those are the elements. And suddenly there's this X that turns up and, it, and suddenly it, it not only is something we didn't know, but it's something that has forces us to change the way that we look at the world. Humanity gets the four, but doesn't know about the fifth. And the fifth is the one that allows us to continue living because it saves us from evil. So that's saving us from evil. I mean, uh, water, fire, earth and air, they're kind of like the elements that we need to live. Yeah, They're not just neutral components of the universe under these systems. They are, they are vital life forces. Yeah, They're the things mm. that we're composed of, the world's composed of. And they give life to humanity. So, you know, the big fiery black hole planet globey thing mm. that's tearing towards Earth later on, yeah, is there to what? Suck that away? To, to, to suck out the water, to suck out the fire, to suck out the earthness of the Earth, to, to take the air, to take, not just kill human life. I mean, it's, it's a ball mm. of destruction that's just going to take away life. And the, and the fifth elements, if you like, you know, the X factor that can defeat this kind of object that is not known to even be a threat until it is. The four elements are a bit neutralness, and you've kind of got a choice of does um, does goodness stand there, so the fifth element, in which case you get this force of life, but if evil stands there, that's that's the threat. It's not just the destruction of, of the Earth. It's that if they get to this machine, itself will create death and and destruction so maybe the the life-giving element is the fifth element and that forces the elements to work in a certain way whereas the evil blob brings the destruction also through the elements life which you so nobly serve comes from destruction disorder and chaos now take this empty glass here it is peaceful serene boring but if it is destroyed all these little things so busy now notice how this one is useful what a lovely ballet ensues so full of form and color now think about all those people that created them technicians engineers hundreds of people who will be able to feed their children tonight so those children can grow up big and strong and have little teeny wind children of their own and so on and so forth thus adding to the great chain of life so the evil planet is um, is approaching from a long, long distance away. Does it go? Does it have a cycle? Does it go around killing lots of other civilizations on in other star systems and other um, other galaxies? But whatever, it's an evil intelligence heading towards Earth. And but but why? Why? What's it doing there? What's its purpose? The Mondachuans have clearly told humans, oh, they're good, this thing's evil, this is a thing that's going to stop evil when it returns, and it's destruction, it's intelligence, but Cornelius the priest, he's just got the tradition coming from what the uh, Mondachuans have told him. So if the Mondachuans are a kind of caretaker race, a bit like the um, the aliens in 2001, uh, they've not filled us in with the, <laughs> with the bullet explanation of it so that it does retain that sense of mystery because it's beyond human reckoning so it's godlike yeah it's it's godlike i don't know if it's implied to actually be a deity but it's godlike in the sense that even at that advanced state where the film's set that's what the present of the film is in the future we've got all of this technology and we've not advanced to a point where we can understand what it is it's not clear that the mondachirans know what it is either i mean they know how to battle it 
They might not be telling us. They might not know to be able to tell us. That's true. So that brings us to the question of uh, the anthropic principle of the film. Why the Earth? You know, obviously, we've seen three different sets of aliens. So the Mondos that you referred to, we've got the Mangalores, we've got the Diva, Pava Laguna, who is another kind of alien. So there are obviously lots of different alien races out there that we interact with on a, on a basis which is no longer surprising. And the Mondachimans trust the diva more than they trust the humans as well, which is an important point. Yeah, exactly. So, the, you know, this idea that the evil planet is coming for the Earth, it's not coming for that whole galaxy. It's not coming, it's coming, it's heading direct to Earth. It's passing by probably other planets in order to come to Earth and come to deal with Earth. That's the, the, the most interesting question for me. Why the Earth? And, and I've got Two kinds of moments in the film that I think allude to this question when um, Vito Cornelius, the, the, the priest who's the legacy holder of, of the defeat of the evil planet, is taken to Zorg's office. There's a bit of a conversation about, you know, Zorg as being an industrialist and Vito trying to save the earth. But the crucial point, I think, is when Zorg shares his philosophy. And what he does is he smashes a glass and he says something along the lines of life comes from destruction and chaos. You know, here we go. I've destroyed this glass. Now look what happens. Um, and these little kind of technological robots come out and start clearing up and one with a sweepy brush and one, you know, sort of like pushing things around. And he calls it a lovely ballet. And he's not just referring to these two or three machines that are clearing up, but he talks about the engineers and technicians behind this who, de who designed all of these things, who can now feed their children because we need this. And he talks about, the, you know, there's a great chain and it's all based upon, if you like, destruction and he and he ends with a little destruction encourages life so that's one kind of kind of response to why the fiery black planet's coming yeah but i mean it's a night it's an extinction event annihilation event so you know the you're kind of lured there to looking back to you know the is it five previous mass extinctions of the planet because the 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 evil planet as we alluded to before it's not just after the humans it's after fire, earth, air, water. It's sucking the life out of the whole planet, life from beginning to end in every way, shape or form. But then there's another statement, and this one comes towards the end of the film. And again, it's another very striking scene. Um, if the first one's played for comedy with Zorg, the second one is it, it's diametrical opposite. And it, it's towards the end, they've escaped the exploding Paradise Hotel and Lilu fires up a little telescreen. You get this montage of horror, the Nazis, Vietnam, ending with, of course, the apocalyptic event par excellence, the Hiroshima Nagasaki explosions. And she, uh, you know, she just she's looking at the screen in horror. It's beautifully played. Uh, it's very restrained as well because you just get you just get cutting backwards and forwards between the images and her face and you know a tear on her cheek looking at this devastation that humanity does to itself. And she doesn't say anything at the time, but come to, the, if you like, the denouement of the film, when everyone's running around trying to work out how to get the machine that is this five elements working to destroy the planet, she asks a kind of question. What's the use of saving life when you do what you do with it? Yeah, which is kind of the inverse principle of Zorg. 
So on one hand, Zorg's got this kind of beyond good and evil, destruction and life are implicated within each other in the same way that when a forest burns down, it grows stronger later, kind of a human, a human, not an individual human, but a non-human, non-humanistic view of the world. Whereas hers and the way in which she posits it is, is totally from, you know, the human point of view. When you look what you do to the world, to each other, why are you worth saving? Why are we even going through all of this adventure and all of this horrors that we're going through personally? Yeah. When there's this eternal recurrence, so another Nietzsche of, of horror that's just going to repeat and repeat forever and ever and ever. Zog here. Am I disturbing you? No, 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 no. I was just. Where are you? Far now. Good. Good, good. How are the stones? Fine. Fine, just, just fine. I'll have the. I'll have to uh, the, the four stones that you asked for any time now, but, but, but it wasn't easy. My costs have tripled. Money is of no importance. I want stones. Up here. I'm not sure if Zorg's necessarily representing what the evil planet actually wants. It's his justification on it. It's still actually quite um, humanistic. His metaphor is like, this creates jobs. You know, I have destruction that creates jobs. And, you know, it's good for life to be shaken up a bit. So I don't know if he wants human life totally destroyed, but that's what his understanding of what what will happen is. And I think that, um, you know, the fact that Lilu sort of has that wobble and it's sort of like, well, what's the point of doing this? I mean, she's kind of coming across to the, if not the evil side, certainly a neutral side of saying, well, I might as well just let the evil thing do it anyway. What is the point of fighting against evil? What's right. the point of doing this thing if humanity, if life is just full of evil anyway? All this does is delay destruction in a sense. You know, the people are more close to what, what she associates with the evil power rather than with herself. And I think to me, it's a bit like a sort of an old Star Trek sort of thing of that the fifth element and the Mondachi ones, and perhaps uh, other whoever told the Mondachi ones about it, if it's not them battling the evil planet themselves. But this idea that humanity is developing and it's not there yet, it's not at the point where it's going to understand it, because ultimately the test and the failed test of humanity is at the beginning where they've, they're able to be advanced enough to discover the evil planet before it gets to Earth. And they shoot it, and that makes it more powerful. Violence begets violence. As the yeah, good. Says. yeah, the priest yeah, makes that point, absolutely. So yeah. it's, it's that sort of, we're not yet the United Federation of Pilots, super beings who are fully evolved, and, and it's a bit like the Star Trek The Next Generation and Q, that, that sort of dynamic of you're not advanced enough yet, and you, you do not understand the universe enough. You're not able to respond in a fully developed, civilized way to 
what's going on, or even to understand it. So ultimately, the understanding that they've got is still, it's good versus evil, us versus them. All Corbin can say in response is, love's nice. Yeah, yeah, all right. Look, no, <laughs> Why are we no. doing all this destruction? At least we fall in love, and um, and then she say, "Okay, fine," um, <laughs> and then she sort of gives it another go. I want to push you on this. I was talking to those two points as both getting away from the good and evil. I mean, I, d- I don't disagree with that. I'm saying, I'm saying, humanity's understanding of it is good versus evil. Right. Because ultimately, what Corbin thinks about the situation is mainly directed from what the priests told him. And what Lilu's told him, and that is pitched in terms of good, evil, us versus them. Uh, Zorg's got a beyond good and evil sort of Nietzschean perspective on it. All there is is creation and destruction. There is no morality. His position is that we don't know what the evil planet's position is, other than it exists and wants to be and wants to destroy and doesn't, you know, and it is sort of competing for this place in this machine. But I mean, going back to your original question, why Earth? I think, I think it's very specifically why Earth. You called it the anthropic point of the whole film, but I'd say it's more terra-centric because humanity is only special because the machine's on Earth, not, not the other way around. It's not something humans know about. It's just we happen to be on the planet that's got the, the machine that, the, uh, that can be used against evil and that the evil, evil planet can use against the universe. Yeah, I mean, that's a fair point. I mean, it, uh, it, the anthropic principle is... Um something that scientists use, but even that's kind of like human-centric, isn't it? You, but you're right. Yeah, it's terra-centric. So, so, so go on then. Why? Why us? I'd say why, why humanity? Because they happen to be on the planet where the machine is. So it's pure contingency? I mean, I don't think the film wants us to speculate on this, really. It's not... I don't care what the film wants. Yeah, I know. But it's just, <laughs> it's just, it's just sort of this mythic thing. All, we, all I think we conclude on the basis of what the film presents is that the machine is there because the machine is there, the evil planet wants to be there because on the one hand, the machine can be used against it. On the other hand, the machine can use it against its enemy. Oh, right. Okay. That's very good. Yeah. So it's the machine is there for whatever reason. Presumably it's been there since Egyptian times. But it's got to be somewhere in order to defeat it. It's, it's not just a thing that can destroy it. It, can, it also attracts it, is what you're saying. Yeah. So let's do Occam's razor and just say it is the uh, Mondachi ones who are the representatives of the faction against the evil planet uh, rather than the other higher caretaker race. Let's just say it's them. Maybe they've put it on Earth because it is this primitive planet. It's sustainable there. There are locals who are trainable to sort of keep it safe until there's war eventually. But ultimately, it's not on their planet because they don't want it on their planet in case they mess up (laughs) and the evil planet comes and destroys them. Rather than the humans being the sort of apex predator in this, or the first world country, really, where the the smaller territory that's been played off between two larger factions. Yeah, we're, so we're we're the stooges. We're the ones left holding the can. We're we're the cannon fodder. And the monsters clearly haven't got much respect for humanity because otherwise they would have made this really clear. Like that. That's the you've got to, you've got to take that seriously. Otherwise, the film has yeah, just got a no, massive ball. Yeah, very good. Why yeah. don't they? Tell them a week before or a year before. They know, they know they've got a vague idea of it. Why why not 50 years before? By the way, you know us, we're an alien race. There's this big alien evil planet that's going to turn up and it's going to try and destroy you. We've been hanging around your planet for a few thousand years. We've got a machine there that's going to help it. I mean, I guess it's because the it's just they don't trust us not to side with the evil planet. They have no trust for us at all. They train 
this cult of them. No, cult's probably not fair. This sect of priests to keep an oral tradition about what's well, it's written as well, but to keep a tradition about what's going on, and those are the people who caretake um, yeah. for the machine. I think you you just said something that I think is very interesting, and um, and it and I think there's evidence to support it within the film. They don't know if we would side with the evil planet, whatever that might mean. Yeah, whatever that yeah. might mean, and. We know there's an element in that because that's exactly what Zorg's doing. I mean, what does Zorg yeah. expect, you know, to be the single survivor on a burning ember? No, there must be something else that he's getting, some some other kind of, you know, glory, glorious kind of ascension or something like that. There's yeah. something he's got to be to be wanting, not just his nihilism, uh, the nihilism that he's going to be part of this destruction as well. I mean, that that would be, that would be, that be, but then again, that would be another reading of the film. He's absolutely willing to die and be part of the great extinction in order to call forth this great, great annihilation, the sixth extinction or whatever. The wall is closing! Here is your mission now. Pass your knowledge to the next priest as it was passed on to you. I, I, I will do as your command, but please hurry. You still have time. Time not important, only life important. So, Matt, um, anything else that you, we didn't get to talk about that you'd like to uh, nod your head to about the film? It's just, it's just really common on how the film subverts expectations. You mentioned it was controversial, but one of the most interesting things is that um, Zorg and the protagonists are never, ever in a room together. The bit closest they come to it is when um, they just pass each other. Oh, in the uh, lift. Like, one comes yeah. out of a lift and one, the other one's going into the lift. That's the closest they ever get. They're not even aware of each other as antagonistic towards each other. I must have seen this film five or six times and twice very recently. And it uh, just goes to show that didn't jump out at me. Uh, but you're, uh, you know, it has to be pointed out to me as well. Uh, well. There we go. Cool. So, again, we need this person to do this podcast rather than you and me then. But, but uh, the, the, the crucial point is, right, at least from Bruce Willis's, from Corbin's perspective, he doesn't really know Zorg exists. I mean, it's not just yeah. a The closest you get is, um, is the priest and Zorg have a meeting. And it's arguable whether the priest really knows what's up there. They're both kind of just playing poker with each other. Yeah, not not really knowing the desires of the other. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the priest knows that Zorg's interested in the stones, and Zorg knows that the priest knows stuff about the stones, but that that's it. And Bruce Willis has never on screen told who Zorg is or even Zorg's a problem. I mean, I think that speaks to the that speaks to the ensemble nature of the film because it's very easy to see this as a, a you know a Bruce Willis film. But you've got you've got um, Corbin. He's a kind of sent on a mission, almost out of habit. Yeah, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's just his habitual way of being in the world. You've got Lilu, who is reconstituted for this job. You've got um, Zorg, who's somehow involved in his own way. You've got Vito as a as a uh, kind of continuation of a tradition. You've got Ruby Rod, who's caught up in events. Um, mm. You know, with his rapid fire kind of like um, modernist joking going throughout the yeah. whole film. These are these are the kind of like players on the board. The mercenaries as well are a separate faction. Yeah, yeah, the mercenaries. Yes, absolutely. Good point. You know, and and you know, as as we referred to the Mondo Shorians or whatever, 
they've got their own pieces in the game as well. And it's almost like no one really knows what anyone else is up to. Yeah. And I think that the, the most iconic moment in the film for me about that is when Zorg manages to disable his bomb. <laughs> yeah. So Zorg's aligned with the Mondalors. It's an uneasy alliance, he's, but he's clearly hired them. He's training with them. They then set off their own bomb. And that just sort of raises questions. But wait, are they actually part of an, another faction that's, that's also interested in the stones? Um, or have they just done that out of spite? You know, what, you know, what's, was that a cultural thing? You know, what, what's going on there? It's sort of ensemble factions as well as an ensemble cast. Yeah, and, and, and an ensemble plot. You know, what's kind of in the Aristotelian tradition is everything adds up and there's a certain yeah. like beginning, middle and end and all of the moments are there logically for another moment. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's almost one of those mantras that people talk about that, that, you know, if it's not part of the plot, what's it doing there? That kind of idea of storytelling is broken all the time. But, you know, Tarantino does it in his way, you know, with kind of sparring off in conversations. I mean, it's like Tristan Shandy, one of the first novels, just keeps having these massive detours and going off in lots of different directions and then kind of coming back. And it, it begs the question. Mm. In a sense, it's it's more realistic in this way, yeah? Because we, we all, as people, don't really know the desires and wants of other people and really what they're after and why they're asking that, these questions. Your example of, of Vito and Zorb being in the same room together you know, and neither mm. really knowing what the other wants or, you know, that would never happen in a tightly plotted film because both would know no. what the other was after. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, that's, I think that's actually a really interesting philosophical point. And um, I think that's a good place to end. No, we're not doing that. You have oh. to do yours. Okay. All so right what's then. your, so t tell me, Dave, have you got anything that you would have liked to talk about? I suppose it's the look and feel of the film, really, the mise-en-scene, you know, which, mm -hmm. um, which is not just the visuals, but also the sound and everything like that. I mean, it's, it's really unique in, in that sense. Apparently, the film was in development for, for decades, you know, and, and loads mm -hmm. of things came into it and out of it. But one of the, um, the, if you like, the aesthetic choices that were made quite early on was um, thinking about the way in which comics look, you know, with bright primary colours and the way in which... Yeah. That's kind of laid out on the page. And let's see if I can get this right. I think um, Besson worked with two people out of the French comic industry called uh, Giroud and Mezier. And they did just hundreds of different drawings, you know, pulling from different cultures, but deliberately trying to make it look and feel, the mise-en-scene feel like a comic book. And I think that goes then gets translated into the way in which the characters dress. They get Jean-Paul Gaultier to come on on board mm. and design all of the all of apparently it's the biggest costume budget ever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, to design all that. And Gautier's point was to try and make everyone sort of like gender fluid. So you never really know exactly where everybody is. So that's mm. that's really lovely. The music is a is a mosaic of sounds of European music, Soviet music, um, you know, you've got Middle Eastern music, you've got reggae at different points. And I think this plays back to the one of the points I was making earlier on that I, I kind of didn't pick up on. So thank you for ask, asking me to, uh, to do something, yeah. say, say last thing. Um, it's the anarchic nature of this film. And I think, again, that feeds back to what you were saying about 
the ensemble cast and the plot elements, how how they're kind of all circling each other without fully knowing where anyone is. I mean, that's the name for this film. It's anarchic. I don't like anarchism. I'm not asking you to like it as a political... I like this film, so <laughs> you, you must be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. So we've ended up where we normally do, with me wrongs. And I, I, <laughs> the universe is restored to its normal kind of uh, uh, state of being, and I can go and have a snooze on the sofa now in the knowledge that, uh, yes, I've achieved wrongness, and now I'm happy with that.